Welcome to Don't Punt to Geo, your UNC football podcast on the Tar Heel blog podcast, hosted by a site of the same name.com on the SBNation.com network. My name is Chad Floyd, and we've got a lot to discuss. Desmond Evans, Stephen Gosnell, the battle for the victory bill. Didn't mean to rhyme there. Jake Lawrence, you want to go on this journey with me? Let's go on a wonderful journey together, Chad. Man, I mean, just be still my heart. Good gracious. <laughs> Jake, uh, we're a few we're a few days uh, behind on this one. Obviously, um, I touched on it on the last episode of Don't Punt to Geo, but Desmond Evans finally five star defensive end from Sanford, North Carolina. He's going to be more of a three four linebacker for the Tar Heels. What was your uh, immediate response when he finally pulled the trigger, and how are you uh, looking forward to him adapting in the twenty twenty defense? My first thought was finally uh, I was relieved. Uh, it had been uh, hinted for a long time that this was going to happen. Um, but, you know, as as 18-year-olds uh, can be, he was on his own timeline a little bit. So uh, I'm just glad it finally happened. Uh, and it came at, at a perfect time uh, about two months out from signing day. So that was huge. Uh, the big thing for him, though, I mean, look, at 6'6", uh, he is going to be next year likely the tallest defensive lineman and or linebacker on the team. Um, there's only two defensive linemen or linebackers. I believe they're defensive linemen this year that are 6'6 and they're 6'8. And one is a senior and the other one is likely going to flip to offensive line. So he automatically brings length and size, uh, which I know you are a huge fan of uh, along the front seven. Uh, and his speed uh, and his strength once he gets into a, an actual college a strength and conditioning program, uh, he's going to be the perfect uh, hybrid uh, edge rusher, uh, either it's either at outside linebacker or defensive end for Jay Pittman's scheme. It's, it is a huge, huge win for North Carolina to get this guy. Yeah, uh, you said it with his uh, speed and his explosiveness. I mean, right now he is basically a 6'6", 240 speed rusher, which if you put some good weight on that and uh, do a little bit of work on technique, I mean, you're you're talking – not not only like an all ACC caliber player, but you're talking like an all pro caliber guy. Um, you don't really see those guys grow grow on trees. Um, really looking forward to see what he does uh, in the strength and conditioning program. And you know, for UNC fans who are kind of picturing the role he's going to play, picture Taman Fox. Uh, would you say that's about accurate? Where you're doing a lot more uh, rushing from the weak side. Oh, 100%. They're, they're going to use him to exploit mismatches. They're going to use his, his natural athleticism. Uh, and I think anyone who watches Simon Fox this year, uh, I think that's what you're going to see uh, in, in Desmond Evans only tenfold uh, by the time he's even a, a, a sophomore or a junior. It's going to be scary. Yeah, we don't need to sleep on Timon Fox. He'll probably be back next year. But uh, five and a half sacks, seven tackles for loss for him from uh, that position. You're basically looking at that. You you could have two guys that are uh, doing a little edge rushing because really, you know, on the other side, you know, playing more of the strong side, which Fox, given his strength, he can definitely do. You could see Evans starting from day one with uh, Surratt and Gimmel in the middle. Would you project for that yes. right now? If you if you're like, you would or no 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 I'm, I was saying I agree with you on Gimmel and Surratt being in the middle. Yeah. Um, I would not project him as a starter yet simply because anything you read about him and when you watch him, he is – he's very raw. We talk about his explosiveness and athleticism. It's all there. But 
the technique and and the understanding of, of how to use his body and all that that's going to take a little bit of time. So I think he's going to I think he's going to be an immediate impact player, but I don't know if he's going to be an every down player as a freshman quite yet, or at least early on in the season. Um, so uh, it'll be rare in that we get a, a defensive freshman that can contribute right away, but I do not think it's going to be so rare that he's a day one starter. Um, especially if, if Fox comes back, because there's still some depth within that linebacker core that can be developed, um, especially with another year under Bateman's scheme. Yeah, I think the early season, you know, if you're looking at the UCF game and the Auburn game and whatever, you know, two or three might come after that, you're probably looking at a situational pass rusher. Basically, anytime it's third and eight or beyond, get him in the game, get his hand in the ground and let him run around to tackle. It's definitely going to be, you know, it is unfortunate that he is not planning on enrolling early because if you could have put him in that strength and conditioning program right away, my answer on that might change. Yeah, I mean, he's going he's gonna to miss a couple months there, and that hurts for his freshman year. But, you know, at the same time, you can't fault the kid for wanting to stay in his high school, uh, finish out his high school career. I think he's going to play finish up with basketball as well. So uh, it's for someone like him, he's still going to contribute. It's not going to delay his development a ton. Just probably delays his his immediate contributions uh, by a couple of months, but you know you live with that when it's a, a five star kid right down the road. Oh yeah, there there is nothing to complain about right now. And along with Miles Murphy, Kedrick Bingley Jones, Cayman Rucker, AJ Beatty, and um, oh, who's the big man in the middle? Uh, Clyde Pender. Clyde Pender. Yeah. Yep. Um. What what a defensive line haul. Uh. That I mean. Bingley Jones and Murphy are already among the elite recruits that UNC has brought in in the past eight years. Uh, Desmond Evans is a step above that. Those guys are going to be a lot of fun to watch over the next four years. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, as, as some people might say, the uh, help is on the way. The cavalry is coming and uh, just have to be patient. Hope that they all, you know, they stay healthy. And then uh, by 2021, you're looking at a, at a fearsome, fearsome front seven. Yes, sir. UNC pulled another commit uh, just as we record this on Tuesday. Uh, yesterday, he was an NC State commit for a while, a uh, 6'2 receiver by the name of Stephen Gosnell. Um, he plays at the same high school as athlete commit. I- I'm calling him an athlete because I still think he's going to come in as a quarterback and immediately shift to tight end, uh, Jefferson Boaz uh, from East Surrey High School in Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. Jake, this was kind of hinted at for a while, too. Um, The reporting on it was really interesting because I know one outlet reported it at about 1 o'clock. I saw it on Instagram at about 1.15. And then another outlet uh, waited until about 6. I've got some insight now as to why that is, but the whole thing played out kind of awkwardly. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Um, it had been it had been thought this was going to happen, uh, especially when uh, a third te- or second teammate of his, uh, I believe Landon Stevens, I think is his name, uh, committed last week as a projected walk on, um, mm-hmm. or not projected, uh, preferred walk on. I'm sorry. Uh, and so you kind of you kind of started connecting a few dots there, um, and then it was complete. Uh, I guess over the weekend or, or as of yesterday, uh, it was it was kind of weird. It was kind of you know, usually the sites that that, that announce this stuff uh, come with some really solid sourcing, or they're usually within minutes of each other. So there was there looked like to be some confusion. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it is what it is. State lost a, a three-star in-state recruit, a top 50 kid in the state of North Carolina, and North Carolina snapped them up. And that's now the second NC State recruit to flip to North Carolina since Mac Brown has been back. 
uh, Tristan Miller being the other one in the 2019 class. Uh, and to date, zero UNC commits have flipped to NC State. So uh, just a fun little, uh, little, fun little fact there that kind of shows that North Carolina is really starting to, to take back the, uh, the state of North Carolina recruiting, at least in the 2020 class. Yeah, uh, State got a couple late in the Fedora era. era. Um, I remember Emmanuel McGirt was a big offensive lineman uh, commit for UNC. He flipped to State. So it's a changing of the tide. I mean, no question about it. But, you know, it. it hmm, I, I don't really know what my point is. I, I, I guess my point would be that uh, it is a different man in charge at UNC. So this is going to be. More par for the course, but usually I don't think UNC and State are going to be swimming in the same recruiting waters, if we're being perfectly honest. Um, I don't think so. And let's be real, traditionally, they haven't either. Um, and, you know, NC State's always going to get, you know, their share. They're going to get some. Um, but anyone who remembers the 90s, and this is why I was I was so careful not uh, to, to tell everyone, don't be so quick to, to, to clown this hire Matt Brown. Those of us who were around North Carolina in the 90s, we saw what happened, and we knew what happened, and we knew that if he could rekindle even a tenth of that magic, then NC State and Wake Forest and Duke were going to be in some trouble. Um, and that is starting to come to fruition. I mean, look, great recruiters don't forget how to recruit, uh, and Matt Brown did not forget how to recruit. So uh, I think that I think that we're going to see something special here. Um, and, and the difference now is that Matt Brown also has the pedigree of a national title and being in Texas for as long as he had. He was still building into Matt Brown when he was here before. So we kinda, we're kind of getting the, the finished product at this point. And I think that the ramp-up time is not going to take near as long as it did uh, in the 90s. Uh, and that, is, that gives reason for celebration for UNC fans uh, and should, should uh, be a warning shot to uh, rival fan bases. Yeah, I, I like the point you make about a finished product because, you know, what he did is he became a delegator of most of the game day operations. And, you know, say what you will, I, I know there are people who have been all over Phil Longo this week. It's hard to have about eight two-point conversion plays uh, installed for a given season, uh, let alone one game. Um, but Phil Longo and Jay Bateman are absolutely the right guys to get the job done. So, you know what, I've, I'm confident in the product on the field, and I'm confident in the product uh, off of it right now. Um, just real quick on Gosnell, though. It sounds yeah, like thank you. you. And- I was going to come back to him, so I appreciate yeah. we got back on track. <laughs> Man, that, that's what a podcast host does sometimes. Uh, well, rarely in my case. But this dude's got 899 yards and 13 touchdowns on 37 catches. Uh it's about 25 yards a catch. And the film kind of backs up that this guy's really explosive. Um, not the typical, uh, he, he, he doesn't look explosive, um, but my goodness. I mean, he just absolutely blows by people. A great route runner, great concentration uh, with his feet when he does have the ball in his hands. Um, Duke and ball. Yeah, I mean, and he has size. You're a 6'2", 200-pound guy. Uh, and we know that Phil Longo, uh, he needs a large fleet of weapons at his disposal. Um, and so this is – Gosnell is going to contribute. Uh, he's probably going to be a, a – I don't want to say a project, but he's going to take some time to develop. But he's going to provide that depth, and he's going to have that time to develop uh, under Longo as well. He's also going to get his, his opportunities to – to see the field. I mean, I think Longo's key number is somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 15 receivers is what he wants at any given time. So 
you're getting an in-state kid. You're getting a, a guy who is explosive. And granted, it's East Surrey. It is. It's one A football that does come with a grain of salt. But at the same time, Chasterat was a parade all-American coming out of uh, a one A school. You know, and so athleticism is is athleticism. Uh, and so while the numbers might be slightly uh, exaggerated based on some of the competition, the skill set isn't, and the ability to catch and make plays isn't. Um, and you cannot have enough size and, uh, and route running ability and explosiveness, uh, in an offense that requires, you know, double digit wide receivers. So it is, a, it is a big, big get, uh, for North Carolina, uh, you know, the talent wise will take a little bit longer there to kind of develop into, but this is, you, you can't win football games unless you're two and three deep. Uh, and this is a guy who has the ability to make you two and three deep for, you know, two or three years before he, before he cracks the starting lineup. Yeah, and I'm going to push back on that a little bit because the Heels brought in four receivers in last year's class. Um, Gosnell is the fourth receiver in this class, uh, joining do-do-do-do-do, um, and it's hard to find names on the fly. Yeah, um, well, yeah, Rose. yeah. Josh Downs, Ray uh, Rose, and uh, Tyler yep. Kraft. Uh, Tyler Kraft definitely being kind of the more rangy outside guy. But this yep. season, UNC has only given snaps to six receivers. And uh, Emory Simmons, being the sixth of those, um, has only gotten 26 snaps in seven games. So, you know, obviously it's nice to have extra buys on special teams. Um, if you have injuries like UNC is having in the secondary right now, obviously you need to be three deep. But they brought in four guys last year. So I don't know where the just overall team fit for some of these guys are because – you know, you go back and look at it, like, Coffrey Brown would have played as a true freshman on almost any other UNC team. Um, Emory Simmons would have been playing a lot more. And then the other two guys, uh, Wilton Spotsville and uh, Justin Olson. I mean, you know, they're guys kind of similar to uh, Gosnell and Kraft that you can see the potential in, but they might not see the field for two or three years. So the whole, uh, you know, process versus results is a little bit interesting to me, um, just because, I mean, Eight receivers that are going to be freshmen or true freshmen is an awful lot. Yeah, it is, uh, and I think that's all a fair point. Uh, I'll, 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 I will say though, and I think I wrote about this earlier this year, is especially when we talk about in-state kids, sometimes it's worth taking um, a project that may take a couple of years to develop to maintain those relationships uh, with some of those schools as well. And I'm not saying that's the case here. I think in some cases that's probably what happens, um, but. At some point, you have to fill out with depth. You have to fill out with bodies. And there's something to be said about, about staying close to home and helping build that. And to give you an example, I mean, Gus Nell is now the 14th in-state recruit for this class. 14 out of 24 are from North Carolina. And the North Carolina fan base lives for that. You know, there are very few states that really want your, want your school to dominate the state. Uh, Texas schools want you to get Texas kids. Oklahoma schools want you to get Oklahoma guys. North Carolina wants North Carolina guys, but outside in Florida and Florida wants Florida guys, but outside of those four States or so, uh, there's not a territorial feeling, you know, more or less. So I think it's, I think it's important. Uh, it's worth, it's worth a little bit of patience and process. Um, especially right now when you're trying to build a foundation for a program, uh, if you can go after those in-state kids and, you know, like we said, if you take one from your rival while you're at it, even better. Uh, so I think there's probably multiple things at play kind of both on a, on the field tactical level and probably on an overarching program strategic level going into that. I can see the PR benefits to an extent, but I mean, you are talking about two guys from a 
1A conference team. That, that's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm not uh, trashing Gus Snow yeah, at all. Um, I, I already threw out the stats there. And, I mean, that's impressive if you're playing against air. Um, you know, it, it, it's just <laughs> yes, it's just interesting to me just uh, on a roster construction uh, perspective. And, you know, Absolutely. definitely, yeah, definitely having the boys from the Tar Heel State, you know, that, that makes it a little bit more fun. And given the 2021 recruiting class and even maybe a prospect or two still on the board for 2020, if you can build, you know, kind of that in-state pride, I'm with you on that. Um, I would, I would also push back and say that a lot of states, um, you know, have a similar desire to dominate in-state recruiting. Uh, that's why LSU's been so good for as long as they have. Oh, that's a good one. That's fair. Yeah, if uh, if UNC ever dominated uh, the state of North Carolina, like uh, LSU dominated Louisiana, I mean, I'd be here for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I mean. Let's have some fun with this one. How many school or how many states really have four Power Five conference schools all within 120 miles of each other? Three of them within, you know, 30 miles of each other. So I, I just I think the geographic making North Carolina also just adds adds a different elements to it. But you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of states do take that pride. Um, I just think North Carolina is a is a different kind of, of special when it comes to that. Yeah, and I mean, you have seven FBS schools overall. I mean, it's it's uh. You know, that, that, I think only Texas, Ohio, and California uh, have more just off the top of my head. So it's problematic, but uh, somebody's got to rise to the top. You know, there's a USC in California. There's a Texas in Texas. There's an Ohio State in Ohio. So build, bring that home. Uh, Jake, do we even want to speculate on the Trenton Simpson situation at this point? Uh, you know, I would love to, but I just think it's better let let's let that breathe, let him do his thing. And uh, for those who don't know, Trenton Simpson, uh, five star uh, linebacker, I believe linebacker who decommitted from Auburn. Auburn. I think he's yep. an outside linebacker. I think different recruiting sites list different things, but in any case, five star linebacker decommitted from Auburn is uh, plays at Mallard Creek, considered a heavy UNC lean. Uh, but you know, if he if he felt that he made uh, too quick of a decision and he wants to enjoy his recruiting process, then uh, let's just wait for that to pop uh, when it does. Yep, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and put any pressure on him. Um, his size at six three two twenty five makes him interesting to me because I I see him more of just a banger on the inside. But and you know, especially with guys like Cayman Rucker and um, Desmond Evans coming in, I mean, get the best eleven guys on the field. But no, nah, I've um. I hope that that becomes a problem for us. Uh, right now, the crystal balls are up to 58% UNC, and uh, not many of them have uh, really trickled in, not for UNC, uh, since he decommitted from Auburn on Sunday night. But, yeah, we'll uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, Jake. Uh, what we are going to do is take a quick break, and we're going to be back to preview the Duke game. And we're back. Jake, battle for the victory, Bill. Uh, UNC's got a battle of their own uh, where they've lost. I don't even want to speculate as to how many uh, consecutive games to in-state FBS opponents. How big is this uh, UNC-Duke game on Saturday? Massive for numerous reasons. It, I mean, it's a, it's a big game. They lost, I believe, three straight to Duke. Uh, I believe it was 16, 17, and 18. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're on a three-game losing streak to Duke. Um, they need this to stay afloat in the coastal, and they need this if they want to keep from going into desperation mode just to make a bowl. Uh, and it's a home game, 
So all of those go into this being a, a big turning, a, a big pivotal moment for the season. Uh, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat that. Absolutely agree with you. Um, we're, we're kind of doing this a little bit rapid fire. Um, Duke has not looked exceptional here recently after uh, they went to Virginia Tech and uh, took the pants off of them. Um, let's see. They basically just limped through a game against Pitt until turning it on the fourth quarter, lost 33-30. They beat Georgia Tech by the same, basically the same margin that UNC did, and then they went to Virginia last week and lost 48-14. to uh, what is kind of your overall takeaway on this team? Because after the Virginia Tech game, I thought they were a real threat. And now I'm, you know, very similar to UNC. I'm not quite sure what to make of uh, these Blue Devils. I think they are just as Jekyll and Hyde as the Tar Heels are. I think they're probably two similar teams at this point in the year uh, when it comes to expectations versus reality versus talent. Uh, I think the major difference there is that um, they are not, where whatever talent deficiencies they may have compared to North Carolina uh, in certain positions, uh, they have a foundation and a program there that they have a way to do things, and it helps them weather storms a little bit better than North Carolina has right now because they're still installing so many new facets of their program. Uh, the big thing that concerns me about them, though, is that they have a quarterback who leads their team in rushing, and North Carolina has struggled against mobile quarterbacks all year long. Um, whether that was Trevor Lawrence, who only had 45 yards or so and a touchdown, uh, I think on 11 carries, uh, whether it was uh, last week against Quincy Patterson, he had 122 yards, I think on 22 carries, uh, something like that. So, uh, and then there's another one, oh, Jamie Newman at Wake Forest uh, had another 73 yards uh, on double-digit carries. And, Zach Thomas and had a big run too. for App State too. Yeah, yeah, and then App State, uh, Zach Collins had that massive run. So, that's what concerns me is that their quarterback, uh, I believe it's Quentin Harris, uh, has, a, has, has accounted for over 1,700 yards, give or take, uh, and 17 touchdowns both through air and on the ground. Uh, and that is what could be their undoing, could be North Carolina's undoing this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I always find David Cutcliffe, you know, I, I, I think the quarterback whisperer thing is a little bit overblown. But I find him as one of those coaches that if it's third and six, his team's going to be pretty well positioned to get seven. Uh, you know, you can scheme that a lot of ways in the passing game. Um, I remember the guy who played for the Falcons, uh, Sean Renfro, was really good about getting that through the air. Uh, Daniel Jones was multifaceted, as we saw last year when he put up like 560 total yards on the Tar Heels. Uh, yep. Quentin Harris is going to be a little bit more run first. It's going to be just paramount for UNC to keep him in the pocket. And, you know, when he, they actually do maintain that pocket to actually cover downfield, not having any coverage bus on the back end, like we saw last week against Virginia Tech, it just gives UNC a lot more to account for. So that does make me a little bit nervous uh, just going in just from that perspective. The, the rest of their running game, Deion Jackson looking at 3.8 yards of carry on 105 carries. Uh, Mateo Durant. 3.7 yards a carry. So nobody else is really going to beat you with their legs. Uh, the receiving core, fairly balanced between freshman Jalen Calhoun, tight end Noah Gray. They are just going to efficiency you to death. And that, you know, that that, that gives me a little bit of pause uh, as a UNC fan when, uh, when the Duke offense is on the field. Yeah, and I mean, the efficiency part is a big deal, right? I mean, 
the, the bugaboo for the UNC defense has been able has been being able to get off the field and be efficient uh, on their defensive stands. Uh, they've been better this year than previous years, uh, but in their losses, uh, especially when this team has a tendency to play down to its competition, uh, that efficiency has kind of dissipated. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I write about it uh, about the the key players to watch for North Carolina. You know, and I really think that this is going to come down to. You need you need Jeremiah uh, Gimmel and Chas Surratt to have big games uh, because with them patrolling the inside, they've got to be able to they've got to be able to hold contain uh, on Quentin Harris. They've also got to be able to stop anything that comes across the line. Um, mm-hmm. And you know Surratt had seventeen I think seventeen tackles last week. I think he's third on the team in sacks or second on the team in sacks with four. Um, Gimmel is third on the team I think in tackles, uh, while Chaz uh, leads the team in tackles. So I think you're looking at the, the inside linebacker position is going to be um, the key position for North Carolina on the field to help mitigate the deficiencies in the secondary and the thin, uh, the, uh, the lack of depth uh, along the along the front three. Yeah, and and the other, I mean, I I I have nothing to add there. The biggest thing for me, you know, with Duke's efficiency and with you know UNC's basic inefficiency on defense is just not getting the offense enough opportunities to cook. Um, Sam Howell at this point is, I mean, by, by the numbers, the best quarterback in the ACC um, by the eye test, I'm still going to call him the second best. You got to get that boy the ball. I agree. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to keep it in his hands. And, and this is my, this is the one quibble that I have uh, with Longo from last weekend um, in the game plan is that for the first five or six games, they did a really, really good job of scheming to the opponent, and they did a really good job of extending drives. Even if they didn't get points, it was not just a three and out. And that was the biggest knock on Fedora in the last couple of years was it was three and out, three and out, three and out, and the defense wasn't having a chance to rest. Well, the defense this year has been better, but now they are about as thin as they were in previous years. And so you've got to find ways to keep that offense on the field, whether it is slowing the tempo down a little bit, whether it's fewer pass plays and letting Javante Williams cook a little bit, you need to keep Sam Howell on the field, but I'm not convinced that he's the one that has to be making all the decisions or executing all the plays. Uh, and if, if North Carolina can find some sort of sustained running success between the tackles, um, whether it's with one of the Williams brothers or with Carter, uh, not brothers, but I use yeah. that because they have the same last name um, <laughs> or Michael Carter, then uh and I think that's the way that they can help that defensive efficiency. And this is when we get into the time of possession talk, and we acknowledge that there are multiple ways to look at that. But when you have a defense that is thin, you have got to give them rest. And the only way to do that is to extend your offensive drives. Um, and that is what North Carolina has to find a way to do. Yeah, there, there's kind of two schools of thought to that to me, because I thought Virginia Tech was uh, giving UNC a lot more to pass against than they were in the running game. I th- you know, Foster was basically playing plus one in the box and daring UNC to run right at him, which, you know, typically does not uh, go well when you do that. Um, on the other hand, you know, you like to see your team dictate to what they want to do as opposed to what the defense is giving you. Um, you know, take what the defense gives us is very much a uh, Fedora philosophy, which on this podcast, we steer clear of those if possible. <laughs> um, but Duke's not really. Duke's not really giving up much on the ground uh, either. They're only giving up three and a half yards per carry. Uh, a little bit worse in defensive pass, pass efficiency. So I would not be surprised to see uh, Howell sling it 40 or 45 times again on Saturday. 
But, you know, at the yeah, end of the day, and, I, and, I was going to say, and if Yami Brown is back healthy as well, remember he was missing towards the end of the Virginia Tech game. So if he's back, that opens up the field a little bit. I get it. Um, and I, maybe I don't know what the exact answer is, but they just have to, they have to find a way to extend the drives. I prefer the run through the tackles. You bring up great points, and Duke's defense is, uh, is very solid. Uh, they are middle to top, of, to top half of the ACC uh, in just about every metric that matters. Um, but uh, extending the drives is what they have to do. And, and however that happens, whether it's slinging it 45 times or running it 60 times, um, that's really kind of what my overarching point there is. But you, you bring up great points about why, why they may struggle to do that. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say it. I think I'd like to see a little bit more just in the, uh, in the quick horizontal game. And, you know, really just I'm, I'm going to basically just, you know, have a champagne party next time I see us throw the ball over the middle to a tight end, but neither here nor there. That's a, uh, that's a method had... too. I, I know what you're getting at. That, I mean, that's a method too. Just some way they do to extend the drives. You don't have to go for the home run every time. Yeah. And if the home runs there, I mean, you take that shot. If it's 50, 50, uh, you know, Howell's deep ball accuracy has not been quite as good as it was earlier in the season, but you take that shot every time. And I've got absolutely no qualm with that. Um, Carolina's record looks a lot better if a couple more of those hit over the past couple of games, to be frank with you. Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, that, that is what it is. And there, there, there are multiple reasons for it. The kicking game struggles, special team struggles. I mean, all that. Uh, I, that's why That's why I kind of laugh. You know, we talk about the coordinators and we see all the, all the online vitriol that's thrown towards them. And they're doing just about everything you can possibly do. I mean, most of the things, most of the issues we have are they're quibbles because if they had better talent, they wouldn't be issues. Um, and we know we we know what kind of what kind of stack of cards or deck of cards that the staff is playing with right now. So, you know, these are probably more and more along the lines of questions that we would love to ask the coordinators if we go out to lunch with them. Uh, but but by and large, I think that I think you and I are, are in agreement on what we would like to see to some way or another, just to kind of kind of stem the the tide a little bit, uh, especially on the defensive end. Yeah, and the defense again. They're they're playing with a talent deficit and a, a talent deficit that has magnified just strictly by the sheer amount of injuries. On the offense, if you had taken the opening day roster, you have Carl Tucker, Charlie Heck, Nick Polino, and Daz Newsom. Those are your four upperclassmen that are on the two deep period. Um, you know, really no need to harp on the coaches at this point. I mean, it is I mean, if you want to look for something that the coaches are doing right, look at the penalty numbers. I, I know you harped on that on uh, one of your three things learned recently. It's not the coaches that are the problem right now. It's just a talent drain on this team um, that is being fixed rapidly. Uh, Jake, I can't let you get out of here without a prediction. I've been wrong on, well, seemingly quite a few in a row. Um, the Georgia Tech game was a gimme, but what do you have – for this UNC Duke tilt at four o'clock on Friday in Keenan Stadium, who's painting that bell blue? Uh, I'm going to stick with North Carolina uh, because I still think they're I think they're the most talented team, uh, and I think they found something in their offense the past couple of weeks. Uh, they're scoring a little bit more uh, for various reasons. I'll go with North Carolina, thirty-four Duke twenty-seven. I think it's within one possession, but I think Carolina pulls it out. Yeah, I like the numbers on that one. That was basically the range that I'm kind of feeling as well. I'm going to do it just 
because I mean, this is basically the show I host and I can, I can be a dick sometimes. You um, can do that. That's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take Duke 31 to 27. I just don't trust UNC's defense to consistently get off the field at this stage in the game, just with all the injuries. I that's think fair. if, and it was, yeah, I don't think it would surprise anybody to see that. Like that's, that's, that's where we're at right now. Yeah. And, and if anybody's, um, you know, and, and you made the great point earlier, if, anybody's got their system down and their concepts down and, you know, the depth in their program for guys that do what the Duke coaching staff wants to do. It's Duke. It's not UNC yet. Um, I think the talent starts to rise to the surface a little bit next year when you also have another year of uh, concept familiarity, but I just don't think it's there yet. I think it's going to be an uphill battle to get bowl eligible at this point. Uh, The Heels left a great opportunity on the field in Blacksburg last week. And I think that's going to cost them again. Yeah, I think I think the app and VT games, uh, those were the two that I had them winning um, that they've lost so far. Um, and so uh, I think that, yeah, it's going to be an uphill battle at this point. Speaking of that, uh, speaking of, of longevity and knowing systems, is Cutcliffe now the longest tenured ACC coach, except maybe Dabo? I think it's Dabo and Cutcliffe very close. Uh, but, I mean, those are the only two guys that were, were – those are the only two guys that were there when I was in college. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's kind of what we're dealing with. We're talking about a program and, and understanding concepts. Like that goes a long way. I, that just matters. Um, and you, know, you have to respect what he's done over there. And uh, I, I think your prediction is is completely fair and valid, considering what we've seen the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I don't love it. Uh, that is definitely a from the brain and not from the heart. Uh, David Cutcliffe was hired on December fifteenth, two thousand seven. Dabo Swinney, October thirteenth, two thousand eight. So yes, he is. In his, let's do math, 12th season at Duke now, and that leaves the ACC. Yeah, there's no one no one else is close. Actually, no, um, I mean, those are the only two. I mean, in the Power Five, and let's exclude Gary Patterson and Kyle Whittingham because they were hired before their programs were in the Power Five. Uh, you got Kirk Ferentz, 1998, Mike Gundy, 2005, Pat Fitzgerald, 2006, Mark D'Antonio, 2006, Nick Saban, just, uh, let's see here, about 11 months ahead of Cutcliffe. So, seventh longest tenured P5 coach. Yeah. Yeah, that, geez, I feel old hearing that. But, yeah, that's about right. So, that's kind of what, you know, that, that's why Duke has been able to sustain what they can. He's, he's found an itch there, and it makes them dangerous every game. Even their down years are dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they went 4-8 and eight in 2016 when UNC went up there with a 7-2 and two record and uh, blew uh, the ACC Coastal. Um, yes, that was that was the beginning of the end. Uh, yeah, that was actually literally the beginning of the end. Although, that was, that know, was... calling, calling a screen pass uh, in your own end zone in the Georgia Dome with 60,000 yelling Georgia fans was maybe – Maybe the actual probably. beginning of the end, but yeah, yeah that was probably a sign of things to come. But yeah, that was, yep. All right, that's enough of that. Let's not get depressed. Let's uh, let's go into uh, go into the weekend on a good note. Before we leave you on a downer, dear listener, go ahead, leave us a five star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe on everybody's phone, laptop, tablet, or device that you have available. It really helps us out. Um, Jake, what do you have coming to TarHillBlog.com over the course of the week? Uh, this is, well, we're talking to you from uh, the past. Uh, this is probably going to post on Friday. 
so at any point this week, uh, I had a recruiting recre- a recruiting recap. Uh, I did the players to watch, which we kind of really discussed uh, on this podcast. And then earlier in the week, I had the, the quick article about uh, Stephen Gospel flipping over from state to North Carolina. So uh, kind of heavy on the recruiting side right now uh, as, uh, as the rest of the staff uh, does great work handling a lot of the analysis piece. Uh, so go and check those out. Hey, you analyze well too, good sir. Well, I appreciate you joining me for this one. We will be back, uh, hopefully, to celebrate Chad being wrong and UNC getting a win. But until next time, keep it locked and go Heels.